Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You know, in the local church, one of the key ways to connect to other people, other believers, is through small groups. I'm going to ask you a number of questions this morning. I want some honest hand raising here. How many here are involved in a small group? Let me just see your hands. Oh, yeah, a whole bunch of you. How many people this morning are involved in my small group? Let me see if there are. Oh, there's a number of them located here. That's great. I want to ask you another question, and it's a hypothetical question. So you have to just go with me on this a little bit. Here's a hypothetical question. How many of us would be interested in being part of the Apostle Paul's small group? Let me just see your hands. Probably we all feel that way. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be in the Apostle Paul's small group? I mean, to have him share his heart with us and to give us exciting insights into what it means to be fruitful in the spiritual life. I mean, you know, if only Paul could be here. I mean, we would just love to sit under his teaching and to learn from him directly. Well, if you you feel that way, I've got good news for you. Through the magic of the Word of God, Paul is here today. And in Acts chapter 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders from Ephesus at a place called Miletus, and what we really have in chapter 20 is him meeting with his discipleship group, and we're going to witness him sharing things with them, reminding them about how he conducted his Christian life, and he is in the process of, with this discipleship group of his, exhorting them and equipping them for ministry. And so we're going to have an opportunity to really eavesdrop on his discipleship group, and I believe there is a lot for all of us to learn from this chapter of the Word of God. Now, we're continuing our series that we've entitled Seeds. It's on the book of Acts. This is phase number three, where we're covering chapters 13 to 28. And I've entitled the message today, eavesdropping on Paul's discipleship group. And we plan to do four things today. Number one, we're going to do just a little bit of setup in trying to understand everything that's happening here. And then we're going to look secondly at the prime activity of the Christian life that he's going to share with his disciples. And then we're going to look at some pertinent imagery of the Christian life. It gives us an idea of what the Christian life is to be about. And then we're going to look at some pivotal things we're to watch out for in the Christian life, sort of some things we are to avoid as we live our Christian life. We're going to learn all of these from Paul as he's teaching his discipleship group. So let's begin, first of all, with a little bit of setup. You know, I was looking at my records, and the last time I preached through um, the book of Acts, when I came to chapter 20, I gave six messages from Acts chapter 20. Now we're going to learn in in verse 7, if you go back and you read it, that Paul actually prolonged, he preached a long message and he preached until midnight. 
So I calculated that if we would hang here till midnight, now there'll be some breaks for lunch and some breaks for dinner, but if we were here till midnight, we could get all six of those messages in. So how many people are really excited about that? A few of you are saying, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Now, something else happened earlier in chapter 20. A young man by the name of Eutychus, who's at that long message that went till midnight, he fell asleep, fell out of a window, and he died. But then Paul was there as an apostle to resurrect him. So I do want to warn you about this, even though we're not going to go six messages. If you were during this time to fall asleep and die, I just want you to know there are no apostles here to restore you to life. So this is important that you stay awake, right, for this session we're going to have. Now in chapter 20, from verses 17 to 38, Uh, He is really doing his discipleship group, and this is a pivot passage in the New Testament regarding the issue of church leadership. In fact, he's going to use multiple terms to describe the church leaders. In verse 17, he describes them as elders. That reflects on the maturity that they're supposed to have. Another term he uses of church leadership is in verse 28. He calls them their overseers. This refers to their responsibility in the local church. And then he also mentions in verse 28 that they were shepherds, they were to shepherd, and that refers to the function of leaders in the church. And he's going to be pointing out to them that they have a responsibility as leaders in the church to lead and to feed the church and to guard and to guide the church. And if we were a group of elders and a group of pastors today, we would just delve very deeply into that subject. We would spend a lot of time developing all of that, not only here, but in the rest of the New Testament. But then we're not all elders, and you might be thinking, well, I'm certainly not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I mean, what am I going to find helpful in Acts chapter 20? Why should I tune in? You know, maybe I should just catch a little uh, shut-eye. It was a late night last night. Maybe I get a little nap. Well, I want us to understand something about church leaders. You know that elders and pastors and shepherds are more than merely leaders of the church. I don't know if you've thought about that. They are actually called to be models of spiritual maturity. In other words, if you want to know what someone spiritually mature is like, you should look to the leadership. If you want to know how to practically live out a Christian life, the idea is you're to look to the leaders in order to gain some information from that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says to the elders, you are examples for the flock. If the flock wants to understand what it is like to live the Christian life, they want to know what maturity looks like, they're to look to you. In a sense, then, what this really means is that exhortations to elders are really exhortations to all of us. And the Apostle Paul stresses that in in Philippians 3.17. He says to the believers at Philippi, brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk or live according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, you're supposed to look to the leadership to learn things about the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, He says to the believers at Corinth, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. I'm looking to Christ's example. I'm looking at how he lived his life. I'm trying to live that way. So then you also then turn around and look at me. In other words, be like me, live like me. Now, I say all of that to make this point. 
we can have great insight into the Christian life by listening to what Paul says here. By listening to what he shares in his elders' discipleship group. And and, and we're going to eavesdrop on it. We're going to sit in on it just like we were there. And what we're going to see is very interesting. In chapter 20 of Acts, there's a capsule truth that he communicates that really gets expanded in all of the epistles. Most of what he teaches is right here in Acts chapter 20. It's just expanded on later on in the New Testament letters. So we want to do some eavesdropping. We want to sit in on their discipleship group. And here's what I want us to think about while we're doing that. While you're sitting in on it, I'm sitting in on it. I want you to think in terms of a checklist. I want you to think in terms of a spiritual grid. I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to walk through this. And so one of the things we need to be asking ourselves is, where do I need to grow in my Christian life? You know, where do I need to make some changes in my Christian life? What does God want to teach me today as we eavesdrop on this discipleship group? What does God want to maybe change in me today? So if, if we can go into it with that perspective, I think the Holy Spirit is going to do a work. So that's just a little bit of setup. Second thing we want to look at is the prime activity in the Christian life for everybody. And we actually see that in chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. Notice he says, from Miletus, he's at Miletus, he sends message to Ephesus and he calls the elders of the church to come down to Miletus. And when they had come, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia Minor how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. What is the prime activity of the Christian life? Could you answer that question? Well, he tells us what it is. It's what he demonstrated. The prime activity of the Christian life, the activity I ought to have as my particular focus and every one of us, is that of serving the Lord. Notice he says that very clearly. I was serving the Lord. And that's what we're called to do when we know the person of Christ. It's the least we can do in light of all that he has done for us. In fact, Paul expands on this idea in the epistles, and he basically says this is to be our daily mindset. Too often it's not, but it's to be our daily mindset, no matter what we're about, that we're serving the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, listen to what he says. and He's speaking to you and to me. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And then just listen to this last phrase. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see, that is the primary activity of the Christian life. Every day, we need to have that perspective that it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. We are serving the Lord. In whatever you do, you know, think about your week, last week and the week that's coming up. What work do you do? Maybe it's schoolwork. Maybe it's chores at home. Maybe it's the care of toddlers. Uh, Maybe it's 
chauffeuring around those who are no longer toddlers. Maybe it's cleaning. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's serving other people in some way. Maybe it's a vocation and a job. But our everyday mentality is no matter what it is, whatever the work is that we're doing, we're serving the Lord. That's the primary activity of the Christian life. Well, how did Paul do that? How did he serve the Lord? How did he model serving the Lord for for me and for you? Well, notice what he says in verse 19. I was serving the Lord, first, he says, with all humility. In in 1 Peter 5.5, Peter writes this. He says to the believers, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's the way that we serve the Lord, with humility. You know, humility is one of those concepts that seems to be confusing to a lot of people. They, they have a misnomer about humility. They think humility means that you think less of yourself, but humility doesn't mean that. It means that you think of yourself less. That's what humility is all about. And, and I'll just be honest, and I know I struggle with this from time to time, but the truth is that some of us are far too impressed with ourselves. And it's just amazing sometimes how someone displays that, even as a follower of Jesus, in their life. How are we to do this primary activity of serving the Lord? We do it, he says, with all humility. And then he says, we also do it with compassion. Notice it says there in verse 19, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with compassion. Now, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12 and verse 15, and he says this. He says, as believers, what what are we to do? We're to rejoice, right, with those who rejoice, get excited when they're rejoicing, and then secondly, we're to do what? Weep with those who weep. And that's part of what serving the Lord is all about. We do it with compassion. You know, an interesting study that you might want to undergo sometime is to look at the, at the New Testament and find out what did Paul shed tears over. And I want you to understand something about Paul. Paul, Paul did not have John Boehner-itis, you know. John Boehner's one of those guys who just almost talks about anything and he gets choked up and tears start coming. I think when you look at Paul's personality, he wasn't that kind of a guy. But what did he show compassion about? I'll give you a couple of them. One thing that he shed tears over was the lost. Romans 9, verses 2 to 3. How do you get to the point of of that? I I think what he did is he just, you know, we're so busy. We got so many things happening, so many things bombarding our eardrums. I think he just stopped for a minute and thought about it. These people that I care about, they're lost. They're going into an eternity of damnation and separation from God, and that hurts my heart. But you see, you have to slow down enough to think about that. Another thing that he shed tears over were believers who were entangled in sin, who were being very prideful and being very fleshly. We learned that from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. He didn't just you know, point a finger at them and say, those stupid idiots he actually felt some compassion for them because their life was messed up 
and they were messing up other people's lives. And he sought to find a way to correct their path. Serving the Lord is a primary activity. Third way that he did it, verse 19, he did it with endurance. Notice he said, I was serving with all humility, with tears, and with trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Look at verse 23. He says down there that afflictions, the end of the verse, await me. Guess what? Even as we are serving the Lord, afflictions are also awaiting us. And that word that's translated afflictions is a very interesting word in the original language. It pictures being squeezed or feeling this pressure coming down on us. And that's what afflictions are. The circumstances and the situations, this, the, the, we feel like they're squeezing in on us, they're crushing us, they're pressuring us. And what he's really reminding them, and he's reminding us of this when it comes to serving the Lord, that trials and trouble and adversity and difficulty is a normal part of the Christian life. I need to be reminded of that all the time. I don't know where, why I think this way, but I keep thinking, if I just walk with Jesus and do what I should be doing, everything should be smooth. But trouble and adversity and difficulty is a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, take a look and a visit to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and it tells us something very interesting as followers of Christ who are serving the Lord. It tells us there this, that the ability to endure this pressure the ability to endure that is developed by enduring that. Wow. Whoa. If I want to be able to endure those things, I develop that endurance by enduring things. And I think part of what he was communicating to his disciples and he's communicating to us is that as you're serving the Lord, don't give up. Don't punt when things get tough. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said to the believers there, we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. We never stop serving the Lord. So the prime activity of the Christian life is serving the Lord with humility, compassion, and endurance. Now remember what we're doing as we go through this. We're, we're treating this as a little bit as a spiritual grid. You know, we're asking, how does God want me to grow? What do I need to take note of? What does he want to teach me? How does he want to change me? I hope you're not missing out on the opportunity for the Spirit to work in your life. Now, the third thing we want to make reference to, <clears throat> excuse me, is pertinent imagery of the Christian life. And we see that in verse 24. He says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may, here it comes, some of these imageries of the Christian life, finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And he's going to use three different imagery, sets of imagery here of the Christian life. In other words, by looking at this imagery, we learn something about how to live the Christian life. And we're, I'm not really going to develop these this morning. I'm just going to highlight them. I'm giving you some spiritual homework for tonight, for this week and I'm going to give you some verses on each one of these. Just, you know, abbreviate on the verses so you can get them down. But the first analogy or imagery of the Christian life is that of being an athlete. You notice he says there in verse 24, so that I may finish my course. And the idea here is that we're to discipline ourselves like an athlete. That's what it means to live the Christian life. And we've given you four passages of Scripture here that you can investigate later. 
the talk about that imagery, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Go and, and read through those passages and learn what it means, this, this imagery of the Christian life of being an athlete. Second imagery he uses of the Christian life is that of being a manager, of being a manager. He talks about there the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. The Bible word of this is being a steward. In other words, all of us, even if you're younger, have been given gifts and responsibilities and assets and time. And the lesson in all of that is that one day, as a manager, I have to give an account to Jesus Christ for that. See, sometimes we forget that. And some passages you can dive into to learn more about this imagery is 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 to 16, Romans 14, verses 10 to 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, and chapter 4, verses 2 and 7. And then there's a third set of imagery of the Christian life that he uses, and that is the imagery of being a witness. He talks about at the end of the verse, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What does a witness do? A witness tells what they know, and a witness shares what they have experienced, and that's part of the imagery of the Christian life. Again, we have passages, Acts 1.8, 4.20, Acts 10, uh, verses 42 to 43, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, and 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 8, all develop this idea of being a, a witness. Now, remember, we're asking ourselves the question as we eavesdrop on the discipleship group, what can I learn from all of this? How can this make a difference in how I live my life? How does this make a difference in how I think? And so we just got this spiritual grid going, asking, where do I need to grow? What does God want to teach me? How does maybe he want to change me? and to deepen my walk. Now, the the fourth thing we said we were going to do today is we want to look at some pivotal things to watch out for in the Christian life. These are somewhat things we would want to avoid because they could cause us a problem. And we see those things laid out for us primarily in verses 31 to 35. Look at them. Therefore, be on the alert, he says to his discipleship group, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that with these hands I ministered to to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there are some things, some pivotal things that we are to watch out for and basically in the sense of avoiding. Here's the first one. We are to watch out for carelessness. Why do we have to watch out for carelessness? Because we have a natural tendency to be careless. 
Notice he says in verse 31, be on the alert. The, the word just means be awake spiritually. Don't be in this sort of this daze. We need to be on the alert. Very important. Verse 28, he says this, be on guard. This is a word that is often translated in the New Testament, beware. There are some things we need to be aware of, not careless about. There's some danger in the Christian life, and we need to be careful that we're not spiritually asleep or spiritually lethargic. Let your eyes go back to verse 28. He says something very interesting there. He says, be on guard, and then notice what he says. For two things, for yourselves and for all the flock. In other words, be alert to your own spiritual walk. Very critical that we're doing that. And then also be alert to those who are under your spiritual care. Be alert for them. Being alert to our own spiritual walk. Consistent emphasis on that in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul says to those believers in that city, let he who thinks he stands, I got my spiritual act together, everything's fine, I don't need to worry about anything, let he who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We need to be not careless about our own spiritual life. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says this, I love the, the New Living Translation, he says, be careful, watch out for attacks from the devil. You're a great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Men and women, did you even think about the devil this last week? The devil was active last week. The devil is going to be active next week. And we need to watch out for carelessness in our life for ourselves and also for those who are under our spiritual care. By the way, a key threat he talks about here is the misuse of Scripture. That's part of what the enemy tries to pull off. Look at verse 29. He says to, to his disciples in his discipleship group, we get to eavesdrop on this, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. In other words, there's going to be a threat of outside infiltration of religious racketeers who are going to come into the church and try to wreak havoc. By the way, we have the greatest exposure to that of any set of believers throughout all of history because we have television sets in our home. And religious racketeers don't even need to be geographically present to be in our home. There's a threat of outside infiltration. And then in verse 30, he says, there's a threat of inside infection that can come from among your own selves, right out of the church. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There's this danger of inside infection that, that expresses itself in divisions and, and cliques. And you think, surely that, you know, did that, does that really happen? Yeah, it really happens. I've been here a long time. I'm telling you, it happens. In the 36 years, I've seen it multiple times. By the way, if you want to know some particular individuals who are identified as inside infection in the local church, in 
the New Testament. I'll give you a couple passages you can look at. You'll see their names listed there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. 3 John, verses 9 and 10. You'll see some actual people who identified who did this kind of a thing. And notice he says here, they will be speaking perverse things. What does that really mean? They tell off-color jokes. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean that. The ESV says they will be speaking twisted things. The NIV says they will distort truth. The idea is that they, they bend and they twist Scripture around. And really what he's trying to say here is don't be careless. Don't get caught off guard. Now, the next thing we're to watch out for that he mentions here is shallowness. This is really tied into what we just looked at. Look at verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He said, discipleship group, I taught comprehensive truth. I just didn't teach the basic stuff. I just didn't teach the popular stuff. I taught it all. I taught about the coming judgment of God. I taught about heaven and hell. I I taught about the importance of church discipline in the local assembly. I I taught about how you need to use your money, not just spend it and invest it for eternity. I taught about the tough issues, things like premarital purity and marital faithfulness and homosexuality. And see, men and women, that's the value of exposition of Scripture. Sure, we do topical messages, some at Wildwood. But the core of what we do is studying our way through a book because then we get the whole story. We get all of the subjects that are brought to us. Look at verse 32. He goes on to say to them, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. See, here's the truth. Too frequently, churches suffer from biblical malnutrition. And individual believers suffer from biblical malnutrition, and it creates havoc. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a great passage. We all ought to know where it's located. And notice it says that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable. For what? Well, we ought to be able to, to list them out. It's profitable for teaching. That means it can show us the right way we are to go in the Christian life. It is profitable for reproof. It will alert us when we deviate off the path. It is profitable for correction. It will help us to return to the proper path as we live the Christian life. And it is profitable for training in righteousness. It will guide us into maturity. It will help us to build spiritual character And we will, as a result, be equipped for every good work. Everything God wants us to do, we'll be able to do because of our exposure to Scripture. So we're to watch out for carelessness, which is related to watching out for shallowness. There's a third thing he wants us to watch out for, and this one's kind of fascinating, and that is covetousness. Look at verse 33. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or Clothes. Now, does something just stand out at you as a little different there? Clothes? I covered no one's clothes. I mean, what, what, did Paul tend to be a clothes horse? You know, was he one of the first fashionistas out there? And he's just saying, I, I, I saw those really sharp clothes over there. And I never, I, no, no, here's what we need to understand. In that day, this is very important, they did not have mass manufacturing 
And when you had quality clothes, they were a valued commodity. In fact, they would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. He's talking about major commodities. I coveted nobody's silver, nobody's gold, nobody's clothes. You remember the Ten Commandments? What's commandment number 10? Got a little hint here I'm giving. Yeah, don't covet. Don't covet. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, talking about the subject matter of greed, which is just the desire to have more, to have more, to have more, he says there are two believers he's talking to. He says greed amounts to what? You remember? Idolatry. And, and, and why are we prone in, in our culture today to fall into that rut? You know why? I think it's because we, we are susceptible because we have a tendency to embrace a core belief, a presupposition that our society holds across the board. And you know what that core belief and, 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 and core presupposition is? Happiness is related to having. That's what our culture says. You know, Kent Hughes talks a little bit about Elvis. You remember Elvis, right? And he says this, he said this about Elvis in terms of having, Elvis had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons. Now, that's a little dated from back in the 70s. We could say, you know, two large SUVs. <laughs> he had a Jeep, a custom touring bus, three motorcycles. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. The top was covered with pearl white naugahyde. There's another dated element. But it says the body of the car was sprayed, listen to this, with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds in it. Nearly all the metal trim was plated with 18 karat gold. There were two gold flake telephones. This is before there were cell phones in cars. There was a gold vanity case containing a gold electric razor, gold hair clippers, an electric shoe buffer. This is in his car, a gold-plated television, a record player, that's a little dated also, an amplifier. The electrical system was in the car that could operate any kind of household appliance. There was also a refrigerator that was capable of making ice in per precisely two minutes. But he died a lonely and unhappy man. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.10 that he who loves money never has enough. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, this is to believers in Jesus Christ. He says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, you know, going after it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Is it any wonder when in 1 Timothy 3, he talks about the qualifications of church leaders. He says, one thing an elder should be is free from the love of money. We need to be on the lookout for covetousness. We should be asking ourselves the question, do I want to make more money merely to spend more money, or do I want to make more money to give more money or to share more money? We're to be aware of, we're to be alert for, we're to watch out for carelessness, shallowness, covetousness, and I'm going to cover two more very quickly. The next one is laziness, laziness, verse 34. You know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me, and in everything I showed you about working hard. 
You know, men and women, just this is the truth. It's very easy to slip into coast mode, into cruise mode in the Christian life. Where we just say, you know what, I'm going to take the easy way. And I got to confess to you, when I was working on this message, I kept thinking, man, is just get it over. I mean, this is too hard. I'm having trouble putting it together. Uh, take the easy way, Bruce. I mean, that's what my flesh was telling me to do. But I'm going, no, 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 no. Working hard. Working hard is part of it. In other words, we're just to display diligence in our spiritual life. Don't coast your way through your spiritual life. Teddy Roosevelt, one of our former presidents, said this. This is fascinating. He said this. He said, there has never yet been a man in our history who led a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. How true it is. And I want you to know that pastors of the church can be tempted to slide by by doing the minimum. But that's not the way we live the Christian life. In fact, in Colossians 1.29, Paul said this. He says, I labor. It's an effort verb. It means to sweat and to toil. I labor, striving. I'm pushing myself according to his power that works mightily within me. It's not something we crank out in the flesh, but we're breaking into a sweat in dependence on the Spirit of God. And, I, you know, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, I mean, where are we coming from? Are we thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting back. I, I'm cruising. I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to move me. I hope sometime in the next month or so, you know, the Holy Spirit moves me. I think we should be asking ourselves the question, am I breaking a sweat when it comes to following Jesus? Or is just the majority of my time, you know, the video game thing, boom, 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 or watching the TV all the time. Another thing we need to watch out for, last one, is selfishness. We see it in verse 35 again. He said, I, I've been doing all this so that you would learn that we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, selfishness. We all feel that natural pull, don't we? I love our native son, Toby Keith, and the way he's able to put, you know, words and music together. He has that one song. Uh, I just love the way he does things with words here, which is, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, what I think, what I like, what I want. You know, me, 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 me. We have a natural draw to that, right? I mean, confess it. I mean, you take a photograph and you look at it. Who's the first person you look at in the photograph? Yourself, right? And yet the example of Jesus teaches us it should be different from that. Paul writes in Philippians 2, and he says, this is what we've learned from Jesus. Do nothing from selfishness, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Men and women, you know that the Christian life is the richest when we're focused not on getting, but on giving. True satisfaction is experienced not so much when we're accumulating wealth as when we are in sharing wealth and meeting the needs of those who have them. Just jot down Titus chapter 3. Verses 8 and 14. And it's going to tell you that there's something that as a believer we're to be very careful to engage in. And it would be worth going to those verses and looking at them. What are we to be careful to 
engage in. We're not called to passivity, we're called to activity. We need to ask ourselves the question, who can I serve? What need can I meet? We ought to be thinking about that every day as we live our Christian life. Now, at this point, we're just going, wowza, holy cow, that was one discipleship meeting. (laughs) Look at all that stuff. A lot of stuff there. So we want to just simply pull back as we close. I want to talk about some life application for all of us. Three things, R&R, list, and ask. Okay, this is a life application for all of us. First one, R&R. What do I mean by that? I mean, re-listen and review through this message. I mean, you can't catch everything that's in here one time through. That's why we have a podcast that's available on our website. And and, and I would say, re-listen it, review the message, and and be asking the question, where do I need to grow? How does God want me to grow? Uh, Where does he want me to change? How can I develop? How can I take a step up in living my Christian life? Second life application is list two personal prayer targets. We talked about going through this and thinking about what does God want to do? What should I change? How can I develop? Think about two personal areas. Just come up with two of them and say, I'm going to begin to pray that, that God would work that in my life. And then the last part of life application is to ask myself the question, who am I serving? Everybody ought to be able to fill in the blank. Ask yourself the question, who could I serve? Who could I serve at work? Who could I serve at home? Who could I serve in my marriage? Who could I serve in my family? Who could I serve with my finances, even if they are limited? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this living book. It's such a powerful book. It's an awesome book. We're grateful for it and what it has to teach us. We're grateful for the opportunity that we had today to eavesdrop on this discipleship group meeting that Paul had. And Lord, we want to admit when we hear all this stuff, our first response is that we are inadequate for these things, and that is true, but you are not inadequate. Our adequacy is from you. And I would pray that you would show us how to grow. I pray that you would show us individually and collectively how to love like you, that you would begin to teach us to break our hearts for what breaks your heart. We want to honor Christ. We want to further his kingdom. We thank you for that opportunity that we have as followers of Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. 